0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Well, uh, hello, welcome. My name is Sam Leeper, and I'm a teacher of philosophy and theology in the south of, the, in the south of England at a school called Canford. I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Dr. William Lane Craig. Dr. Craig and I first met back, I think it was May 2019, for the UK school store. It was was a really successful event. However, uh, a lot has changed since then with COVID-19. Many pupils' education has been affected across the world, with many having to study at home, online. Recently, I decided to reach out to Dr. Craig to see if he was willing to do a recorded online interview, which can be used as a resource, And, and luckily he said yes, so thank you so much for that. Oh, it's my pleasure,
1: Sam. Honestly, uh, we had such a lovely time at Canford and the other schools on that speaking tour that when I got your invitation to do this Zoom call, I was uh, just thrilled and eager to join you again, even if at a distance.
0: I'm so glad. For today, then, the the interview's focus is, is specifically for school students studying philosophy, theology, and religious studies. But Also, for those who might be interested in the subject and just want to learn a little bit more. Today, we're going to talk about the cosmological argument. Prior to this interview, I asked pupils across the UK to put forward questions to Dr. Craig. And the interview is going to be led by you, the pupils. We have received many questions, but unfortunately, I can't read them all. I will be paraphrasing a few questions, but hopefully I'll, I'll do them justice. So Dr. Craig, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Mm. Really appreciate it. I'm super excited about this. So let's begin with the the overview of the Kalam cosmological argument. So the Kalam and your Kalam cosmological argument can be formulated as follows. Premise one, everything everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist conclusion, the universe has a cause. And and you write perhaps the most contentious or the most controversial premises is the second premise. Can, Can you briefly overview your Kalam argument in your own words?
1: Yes, those are the words in which I would express it, but I would add that when you've arrived at that conclusion, you're not finished with the argument. The final step then is to do a conceptual analysis of what it is to be a cause of the universe And a number of very striking properties of this cause come out of such an analysis. It can be shown, I think, that this cause is uncaused, beginningless, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful, and personal. Uh, And therefore the argument has great uh, theistic significance. Now in defending the premises of the argument in support of the first premise, I offer three arguments uh, that could be summarized as follows. One, um, something cannot come into being out of nothing, uh, and therefore something begins to exist, it has a cause. Secondly, if things could come into being uh, out of nothing, then it's inexplicable why just anything and everything doesn't come into being uncaused. And then thirdly would be an inductive argument based upon our experience of things that begin to exist. They inevitably have causes, the premise is constantly verified and never falsified. And so I think we have good reasons to believe the first premise. With regard to the second premise, I offer four independent arguments, two philosophical and two scientific. The philosophical arguments are based, number one, on the impossibility of the existence of an actually infinite number of things, which would imply that the series of events in time cannot regress infinitely. Uh, The number of past events or causes must be finite, and therefore the universe began to exist. The second philosophical argument is based upon the impossibility of the formation of an actually infinite collection of things by adding one member at a time. You you cannot complete an infinite series by successive addition, Uh, and yet that is the way the series of past events was formed, one event occurring on the heels of another. It follows, therefore, that the universe must have begun to exist. As for the two scientific confirmations, the first would be based upon the expansion of the universe, which points to an absolute beginning of the universe uh, around 14 billion years ago. And then the second scientific confirmation would be the evidence of thermodynamics, which uh, says that the universe is not eternal in the past, but began in an initial low entropy state and has been, growing toward uh, a greater entropy ever
0: since. Would you, um, go, going by one of your original points about uh, the conclusion, would you perhaps um, make the universe has a cause as a third premise, and then the conclusion being, and, we call, and the conclusion uh, as an inductive argument, and we call that cause God? and the God implies all of that? Well, actually,
1: I never or generally don't refer to the causes as God. Uh, What I say is that there exists a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful and intelligent personal creator of the universe. And I think that's a rich enough concept to be called God, but I'm quite happy not to use the word God if that's um, objectionable to some
0: people. Okay, thank you. I want to start with this question, um, because I've taught the cosmological argument in various forms over the years, um, and this is the question that that pupils really go to when I introduce the cosmological argument to them. Ah. If everything that begins to exist has a cause, Why doesn't, and let's just call um, the cause God for for argument's sake, why doesn't God have a cause? Who caused God? That is really the the, the first response I get from pupils Mm -hmm. that I teach.
1: Well, the response is obviously based on a misunderstanding of the first premise. The first premise does not affirm that everything has a cause. I think that's false. Uh, The first premise is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. And since God never began to exist, but is an eternal being, uh, there's
0: just no reason to posit a cause for God. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting you say that, because that subtle difference, many pupils miss out, and you have to sort of, you know, rephrase it to them, and then, and then they go, oh, I see. That. No, we're talking, yeah. um, we're talking about different things here. So, So this might lead quite nicely onto my next question. Why specifically the Kalam cosmological Mm. Well, it's autobiographical, really.
1: Um, I've always been uh, puzzled by the notion of the infinite past, always troubled by it. But when I became a senior in my university studies, I came across a book by Stuart Hackett called The Resurrection of Theism in which he argued for the uh, existence of a creator of the universe on the basis of the impossibility of an infinite past. And the argument really resonated with me. In studying for my graduate exams in philosophy, I discovered that this argument has a long and ancient history going back all the way to at least the fourth century uh, AD and includes among its proponents some of the greatest figures of Western world intellectual history. And so I thought at that time, I have got to come to peace with this argument. Is this really a sound argument or not? If I ever do a PhD in philosophy, I want to write on this subject. And so that was what I did. I applied to do my doctoral work in philosophy at the University of Birmingham under John Hick, writing on this argument. And it was a tremendous experience. Three books came out of that study uh, and an argument that I have since defended in professional publications and in debates on university campuses over the years.
0: And and John Hick equally is a thinker that we we cover in many exam boards here in the UK as well. Mm. It's really yes. interesting to for for pupils to see that connection as well. When it when it comes to um, the cosmological argument and pupils being taught the cosmological argument, different exam boards cover many different cosmological arguments. As you mentioned, there's there's um, a lot has cropped up throughout history. For instance, the exam board that my school follows covers Aquinas' third way for contingency and necessity. And student Nat Merrill asks. Do you find Aquinas's argument for contingency and necessity convincing? I don't find Thomas's formulation of the contingency
1: argument persuasive. It is based upon a lot of heavy-duty metaphysical assumptions from Aristotle that I think are are too heavy to take on board. Um, And therefore, I prefer the version of the contingency argument that Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz offered. Uh, so, yes, I do like the contingency argument very much, um, but I prefer a Leibnizian as opposed to a Thomist formulation of it. Jake
0: Lyon from Wells Cathedral School asks. How can the cause who supposedly exists outside of time and space and is an immaterial being cause the material universe to exist? Well, I would say he does it by thinking. Um,
1: We ourselves are familiar with ourselves as causes of uh, effects in the material world, namely in our brains and bodies, by thinking. And God, as an immaterial mind beyond the world, has the ability, I think, to effect material causes or changes by thought. Now, if you were to say, but then what is his relationship to space and time? My own view is that when God brings the universe into being, that he himself enters into time voluntarily at that point, so that although God is timeless, saws creation; He is temporal since the moment of creation,
0: and I think that that is an unproblematic view. So that's when perhaps the the Christian theology comes into your line of argument, where God is outside of time and space, but during creation comes comes into time and space. Yes, I would agree, or
1: disagree rather, with Christian theologians that take God to be timeless. In an unqualified sense. But fortunately, I don't think that that is um, incumbent upon Christians, biblically speaking. The Bible uh, is very ambiguous about how it speaks of God's relationship to time. It's unequivocal that God is eternal, but whether that means that God transcends time altogether or is everlasting throughout time, I, I think is not a question that can be settled by biblical exegesis. It's a philosophical question.
0: Elliot McCoy from Marlborough College asks, if the premises everything has a cause and infinite regress of causes is not possible are both true, why can an exception be made for God, who is both uncaused and infinite? Well, notice again
1: that misformulation of the first premise, formulated as everything has a cause. And that's not the premise. The premise is everything that begins to exist or comes into being has a cause, and God never came into being. The, the argument of sound proves that there must be an absolutely first uncaused cause who is eternal uh, and, and therefore never uh, had a cause.
0: Students from uh, Dean Clace ask, um, Could the universe be eternal rather than God? And and by this, I, I believe they're referring to David Hume's arguments from his dialogues when he writes, why may not the material universe be the necessarily existent being?
1: Yes. Well, I think that the universe cannot be the necessarily existing being, because in order to exist necessarily, a thing has to be eternal. If it comes into being, that shows that it's contingent, not necessary. So the question is, is the universe past eternal? It can go on forever into the future, but has it existed eternally in the past? And I would present the four arguments that I summarized very quickly at the beginning of our discussion as to why I think it is implausible to think that the universe is past eternal.
0: So David David Hume's downfall, perhaps, was being an 18th century philosopher and not, not being aware of um, scientific theories that, that you um, bring. Oh, forward.
1: certainly not aware of modern Big Bang cosmology and thermodynamics, but I'm glad you mentioned that again, because if you read the footnotes in Hume's inquiry, there are a couple of footnotes where he talks about the possibility of an actually infinite regress of events. And he says, no man whose intelligence is not corrupted rather than improved by the scientists would ever be able to assent of it. So Hume actually concedes that crucial premise that there cannot be an actually infinite regress of past events.
0: It's extraordinary. Yeah, well, we'll come back on to, to Hume uh, in, in a little bit. Um, before we do, though, uh, pupils at Headington School ask, and I think it's a really interesting question, uh, what is the relationship between reason and faith? Do you need faith alongside reason for your cosmological argument to be successful? Well, this question is especially
1: interesting for me because I'm currently engaged in writing a systematic philosophical theology, and the chapter I'm working on is right now on faith and reason. Um, And I would say that the Kalam cosmological argument does not depend in any way upon religious faith. Uh, The two premises are straightforward factual assertions for which we can give philosophical argument and empirical evidence. Uh, I think that faith is trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. So if this argument gives you good reason to think that there is a personal creator of the universe, that's when the question of faith arises. Will I place my faith in this creator of the cosmos who made me and everything around me, or will I choose to live my life independently of him? That's the real question of faith.
0: And would you say that that faith um, adds to... The, the inductive style of argument, where if you, if you bring forth faith, it actually makes the conclusion more probable for many. because just Well, like- that was why I said
1: I didn't think that the argument depended in any way upon religious faith. I mean, if you want to talk about faith and in induction, for example, well, all right, but that's not a, a, a religious tenet. The argument is quite independent mm-hmm. of any religious views that a person might have.
0: Alex Dauberny from Campford School asks, how can we ever understand a creator who has never come into existence? So you know, he's focusing on that side of the argument, i.e. didn't begin to exist and is completely outside of our understanding of the universe. Well, I would say to Alex that this
1: just is that subfield of philosophy, which is called metaphysics. Metaphysics Means literally beyond the physical, beyond physics. Uh, and so the discipline of metaphysics is one of the oldest subdisciplines of philosophy and is flourishing on the contemporary scene today. And so people who engage in the discipline of metaphysics attempt to understand the nature of reality uh, even beyond the physical. Uh, and while I would agree, that we cannot fully comprehend God, uh, obviously being finite. Nevertheless, I think we can understand partially certain things about God. Uh, For example, that he is uncaused, beginningless, changeless, timeless, spaceless, uh, enormously powerful, and so forth, the sort of things that these arguments provide. You can infer things about causes from their effects, uh, and that would be one way in which we can gain some knowledge
0: of this transcendent
1: being beyond the universe.
0: Would you say that's similar to uh, Aquinas' line of argument where we can't truly know God, but we have, um, God has, has given us, um, um, the, obviously, the gift of reason, which is the greatest gift of all. And we can observe all of these things and infer from from that, but we can't truly understand the notion of Yes, very much so.
1: Aquinas would say that we can infer things about God from the knowledge of his effects in the world, and I would certainly agree with that. I would actually even go beyond Thomas because I think that we can have positive knowledge of God um, that, for example, when we say that God is the cause of the universe, that that is meant literally and univocally, Uh, without ambiguity. Uh, So yes, you can infer properties of a cause from its effects.
0: Thank you. Um, I think you might have sort of answered this question already uh, in reference to Gottfried Leibniz's Principle of Sufficient Reason, but I'll I'll put it forward to you anyway. Rupert Rupert Hutton asks, and again, this is perhaps a link to reason and faith, Would you acknowledge that even if we accept the Kalam and the universe has a cause, it is not even remotely inferred that that cause is God, let alone one who is deeply personal or omniscient, i.e. all-knowing. In this way, the argument does not support Christian theism. Well, Well, now, the Kalam
1: cosmological argument is not simply those two premises. As I say, it is uh vital that we do a conceptual analysis of the cause of the universe in order to determine what sort of properties this transcendent cause has and as i've already indicated i think when you do that a number of very striking and theologically significant properties do come out of such an analysis that uh, support uh theism now, No one has claimed that the Kalam cosmological argument supports Christian theism specifically. Indeed, in the history of this argument, it's been offered by Christians, uh, both Catholic and Protestant, Muslims and Jews. So one of the things about the argument that is so appealing is its intersectarian appeal. Uh, It is one that all of the great monotheistic faiths uh, have uh, at times, endorsed and uh, propounded.
0: Brilliant, thank you. Um, finally, I wanna cover two key thinkers which are uh, in many examples across the UK. And they're the two British philosophers, we've mentioned one of them already. Um, mm-hmm. One is Bertrand Russell and, and the, the other is David Hume. Bertrand Russell famously had a BBC debate in 1948 with Frederick Copleston. Um, yeah. and he argued for the fallacy of composition This is the fallacy, i.e. a failure in reasoning of inferring that something is true of the whole from the fact that it is true of part of the whole. Now, Dr. John Fry gives this example. Premise one, the effect of hydrogen is not wet. Premise two, the effect of oxygen is not wet. Premise three, liquid water is made up of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Conclusion, therefore, the effect of liquid water, H2O, is not wet. Russell gives the example, everything in the universe is contingent to the universe as a whole is contingent. For him, this commits a fallacy of composition because mm-hmm. uh, we we can claim that equally, everything in the universe is contingent, but the universe as a whole is necessary. What are your thoughts about Russell's argument? So what, are, what are your thoughts towards Russell there? It's extremely
1: important to understand that neither Russell nor Copleston Was talking about the Kalam cosmological argument. They were talking about a different argument. The Kalam cosmological argument does not reason from part to whole, uh, and therefore it cannot commit the fallacy of composition, which is attributing a property that belongs to the parts to the whole. The Kalam cosmological argument does not say that every part of the universe had a beginning, therefore the whole universe has a beginning, nor does it say every part of the universe has a cause, therefore the whole universe has a cause. It does not reason by composition, and therefore it cannot commit this fallacy. It,
0: this, this is just a complete uh, and you, completely you, you, erroneous you, objection. And and you wouldn't be able to use the premise, everything that begins to exist um, has a cause as, as a part for, for the fallacy of composition there.
1: the. Reasons that I gave in support of the first premise were philosophical. The first two arguments were philosophical arguments that don't reason by composition. The third one was an inductive argument uh, from our inductive sampling of things that begin to exist and we see that they have causes. But students mustn't confuse inductive reasoning with reasoning by composition. When you do an inductive survey of smokers, say, and determine that smoking likely contributes to lung cancer based on this inductive sampling, you're not reasoning by composition. you know, from one smoker to some big smoker or something like that. So inductive reasoning again isn't reasoning by composition, and that third argument in favor of there being a cause of the universe is based upon inductive reasoning, not composition.
0: Brilliant, thank you. And 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 finally, Hume, uh, and this is more this is more about um, uh, the conclusion of necessary existence. Uh, Hume and Russell actually both reject the claim that any being can be necessary. Assuming that God's existence is logically necessary, it would be a contradiction for God not to exist. Would you you say that's true for yourself in your argument? Well, actually, it's noteworthy that the Kalam Cosmological
1: Argument does not infer that this cause of the universe is metaphysically necessary. So it doesn't take a stand on this issue, simply just that such a being exists. Now, I am inclined to think that both of the premises in the argument are metaphysically necessary, and that therefore the conclusion is metaphysically necessary as well, but that's not, that's not part of the argument as, as stated. Now, what I would say in response to the question is that this is one of the most important respects in which philosophy in the late 20th century has really changed. From the way it was before. As a result of the work of philosophers like Saul Kripke on possible world semantics, um, it has been realized that there is a distinction between metaphysical possibility and necessity and strict logical possibility and necessity. Uh, One of the best illustrations of the difference between the two is um, that the statement the prime minister is a prime number. Now that's metaphysically impossible for the prime minister to be a prime number, but there's no strict logical contradiction in that statement. Uh, Similarly, uh, you can have metaphysically necessary truths. uh, The contrary to, or the the negation of which, do not involve a strict logical contradiction. So for example, uh, think of the desk at which you're seated. The proposition this desk is made of ice is not metaphysically possible. If you had an ice desk that was exactly the same size and configuration as your desk, it wouldn't be the same desk as your wooden desk. Um, and yet there's no logical contradiction in saying this desk could have been made of ice. So we uh, have learned now to distinguish between strict logical necessity and possibility and metaphysical possibility and necessity. And if the Kalam cosmological argument leads to the existence of a metaphysically necessary being, it would be a being whose Necessary existence is metaphysically necessary, uh, and therefore the statement God does not exist uh, would not involve a logical contradiction, but it would still be metaphysically impossible.
0: Yeah, there we go. You can certainly uh, use those examples to to counter-argue David Hume's criticism of um, necessary existence in in his dialogues, where, where he argues, well, you can think of God not existing, therefore it cannot be necessary um you, you can't think of a bachelor not being married so i i think that is a counter argument be really uh, great to, to 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 use in in essays if, if you're writing an essay or, or just to to think of uh, i i certainly argue that um we sh- you know pretty much every example should be using the kalam the which is certainly my favorite version of the cosmological argument as as the starting point good it is um uh, you know It it certainly has has, has the most rigor out of all of the other cosmological arguments, no doubt. Dr. Craig, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. I hope everyone listening found the video to be informative, and and hopefully we can do something like this again soon.
1: Well, thank you very much, Sam. And I wish all the students who have uh, joined us today best wishes in their further studies.
0: For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.